The Italian Wine Podcast is introducing a new donation drive this month. It's called Why Am I a Fan? We are encouraging anyone who tunes in on a regular basis to send us your 10-second video on why you are a fan of our podcast network or a specific show. We will then share your thoughts with the world with the goal of garnering support for our donation drive. Italian Wine Podcast is a publicly funded, sponsor-driven enterprise that needs you in order to continue to receive awesome free wine edutainment seven days a week. We are asking our listeners to donate to the Italian Wine Podcast by clicking either the GoFundMe link or the Patreon link found on italianwinepodcast.com. Remember, if you sign up as a monthly donor on our Patreon, we will send you a free IWP t-shirt and a copy of the Wine Democracy book, the newest Mama Jumbo Shrimp publication. Hello, everybody. My name is Polly Hammond, and you are listening to Uncorked, the Italian wine podcast series about all things marketing and communication. Join me each week for candid conversations with experts from within and beyond the wine world as we explore what it takes to build a profitable business in today's constantly shifting environment. In this episode, we welcome Gravinder Badia, live from Wine to Wine 2022. As a former lawyer turned wine lover and publisher, Gravinder chats with us today about the business of running Quinch Magazine. We'll talk branding, adaptation, and the path to wine writing now, as well as a little hip-hop and wine, a real Gen X podcast. Let's get into it. All right, here we go. This is exciting. It is my first time ever podcasting live from wine to wine, and you get to be that inaugural guest. Gravinder, how you doing? I'm well. It's, it's an honor. Oh, this moment will live forever. Uh, that's really it. Um, so I, you and I have had a chance to talk over several editions of Wine to Wine, which is great for me because I have a little bit of backstory on some of what you do. For the benefit of the audience, talk to us a little bit about Quinch, and then we'll work into your history with Italian wine and then maybe some upcoming exciting projects. Sure, absolutely. Uh, so, I mean, Quench Magazine is actually the oldest, longest-running uh, food and wine publication in North America. It turns 50 in 2023. So with Quench, I've actually written for the magazine for 22, 22, 23 years. Um, I was the contributing editor since... Oh, probably 2006, uh, wine editor since 2014, and effective January 1st, 2021, I I went crazy and, and bought the magazine. What the hell and were you thinking? I have no idea. <laughs> Was it anything different from what you expected? Like, is this the kind of thing? Because we all get these wild hairs that were like... Oh yeah, I know exactly how this works. I'm going to go in, you know, we're going to, we're going to overhaul things. We're going to change it. We're going to fix everything that in all this history um, of working with, with the organization has bugged me. What did you find was just immovable? And what were you like, I am Elon Musk and this shit is out the door tomorrow. (laughs) Well, I mean, it was interesting because I mean, during the pandemic, uh, it was, I think May of 2020 and I got a phone call from our editor-in-chief at the time, and he basically said that uh, we're out of print. 
because the printing press in Montreal, where the magazine had been printed forever, was shut down for not being an essential service. And so we went from about to, to and it was the, I think it was the June issue that was, uh, was going to print, uh, to being out of print. And I think it was probably, our, our previous owner was fantastic. I mean, he supported this magazine for so many years, uh, through the ups and downs, through, through, through everything. And that fall, he actually approached me and, and asked if I'd be interested in buying the magazine. He said he was ready to sell. And I think we all knew if he had offered it up to some big media company, we all know how that would have gone. I mean, big media companies love the idea of a niche publication, but right up until the moment that they own it. Exactly. And then they phase it out over two or three years when they realize it's not actually a profit center. Right, right. <laughs> and having been a part of that magazine for such a long time, uh, and it was originally called Tidings when it first when it first started. Uh, and back in, I think, 2008, um, uh, our previous editor-in-chief, Aldo, and I were having uh, uh, dinner in Toronto. And I said to him, uh, because we were talking about doing a little redesign and, 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 uh, and I said to him, I said, we need to change the name of the magazine. And, Modernize it? Well, and, and he said to me, he goes, we can't, it's been called tidings since day one. I said, yeah, I said, but nobody knows what the fuck tidings means. Yeah, 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 exactly. I mean, right? it's very much my grandparents kind of, you know, glad tidings, peaceful tidings, good Christmas time. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, uh, Aldo had done such a good job when he took over. He, he became uh, editor-in-chief in early 2000s. And he had done such a great job with evolving the look of the magazine. And he and I had worked together to really kind of update the editorial. And, and, and I mean, it was, I mean it's, it's always been a great magazine, but you always want to continue evolving. And so his comment to me was, he goes, Pierre's never going to go for that. I said, you got to talk to him. He goes, no, he's never going to go for it. So over the next six months, periodically I'd be speaking with Aldo. I said, did you talk to Pierre? He's like, I haven't yet. I haven't yet. So finally, uh, he said to me, he goes, he goes, if, if I talk to him, he goes, we need a new name. I said, quench. I said, quench is the new name. I said, it means, you know, quench your thirst, quench your curiosity. I said, it, it opens up so many doors. So finally he talked to Pierre and he phones me and he goes, Pierre loves the idea. And so we actually spent a year in order to do it right. And we relaunched the magazine as Quench in 2010. Why a year? What do you mean by do it right? Well, everything, the look, the, you know, update the website. Uh, I mean, you can't just do a rebrand overnight. And so it had to be done in a thoughtful way because here's a magazine that had been around since 1973. You can't just change the name overnight. I think that predates both of us, actually. Yeah. <laughs> no, not me. <laughs> Pretend. <laughs> that's, that's interesting. I mean, I don't want to derail the conversation too much, but I think that is something, you know, I've, I've laughed about this even today. There's this joke, new market or new logo kind of thing, that there is this um, desire to make a mark in the way that we do it as we go in and we radically alter things as opposed to a very sort of slow rollout approach that's not so much pattern interruption that... And it's so funny. We're sitting here having this conversation on the heels of literally the Twitter outrage, right? Which is every bit of fuckery we can possibly imagine um, on how not to alter a brand. Um, anyway, so I love that idea. And I think that that's something that I really like for people who are listening to latch on to that it's great to have a new idea 
but that it's kind of like a tattoo. You know, you need to carry it around with you for a little bit and you need to get used to it. And then you need to, you know, present it accordingly. Um, yeah. Absolutely. And so it it was the it, it it's also important, you know, when when you do that kind of rebranding. Sure, the idea is that you want to also appeal to a whole new audience, but you don't want to alienate your old audience either, right? And so um, it was done well. The, the relaunch was done very well, and we had not only a great response from uh, our subscribers and our readers that we had had for, for years, but uh, there was a, a phenomenal response from both consumer and industry in terms of the relaunch and the new look, let's say. Um, and so when the, when the pandemic happened, uh, we were actually talking about what's the next evolution because it had been about a decade. And so uh, when Pierre was ready to sell with magazine, uh, and <laughs> as much as it's absolutely, I mean, A, I mean, you know, buying a magazine is going to be a money pit, and it it is, <laughs> um, and it's not an easy thing to do. Um, You'll never I, sleep again. Oh God! No. And you know, it it was. I'm at, I I was at the stage in my life in my career where I really wasn't thinking about taking on something that big. Um, I had done a lot of big stuff. And I was kind of, you know, I, I, I joke that I, I was easing into semi-retirement, uh, but it, it, <laughs> it was, it was something that became, I mean, it, it, it consumes you. Mm, mm. And so my first thought was when I, I took the magazine over was, okay, I didn't want to see it fade away. I mean, we'd all worked so hard to get to, to where it was. Um, and we were already talking about what the next evolution was. And so my thought was, yeah, I'm going to take this thing over. Uh, but number one, do we go back into print? And I still believe in print. And so I said, yes, we are absolutely going back into print. Uh, but I also made the decision that we're not doing eight issues a year anymore. Uh, we're now doing two issues a year print issues a year. Um, the uh, website has new material every week. But uh, the other thing was that, okay, let's actually make this magazine a much truer representation of society. Let's expand the voices, which in turn will expand the audience for food and wine, so that we are actually going beyond the traditional audience that so much of mainstream food and wine media um, direct their their stories yeah. to. I mean, we all know what you're talking about there. No, no, you know, we're not glossing over anything on that one. No, not right. at all. Not at all. And so I think the difference when I took it over was the fact that um, being someone who's been in the industry for 27 years, um, but also, you know, I was always the only person of color at a tasting. I was always the only person of color on a press trip. Um, but 
that all having been said, the idea wasn't to make this a diversity publication. Right. Right. It was just about, I think, to maybe make it contemporary, to make it reflective of the world that we live in now. And that's exactly what it is. And nice. I, I, so I, how did you do that? Well, I, I think, <laughs> number one, you know, it's, it's, um, it's actually just doing what we just said, which is let's make this publication well, a reflection of society. Hold so, on. Hold on. I, I think that it could be, but I think that we also see a lot of examples. We see this in advertising, right? Where we say we want to be more reflective, but what that means is that we, you know, tokenize it. I, I go, it's not just, I mean, I see this in websites all the time. It's not just about putting up a picture of someone with a different skin tone than you are. It's actually about how do we reflect it in our language? And if we've got food and wine, how do we reflect it in that? And, you know, how do we reflect it in our advertising and marketing and social media and everywhere. So, well, I think the, the difference is, is that the person who's actually making the decisions is a person of color and person who, and I say this to people often, diversity is a concept for white people. So all these diversity committees that pop up, this, these are organizations, these are, are, are organizations, mainstream organizations that want to feel that they are doing something in a positive way. So they set up these diversity committees. They do, and a lot of it is optics, right? And in order for, I don't have to answer to a white board of directors. I don't have to answer to uh, a white editorial board who are thinking that, okay, let's have, uh, let's just add a few people of color and, you know. Let's look like a Burberry ad. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. And so I approach the magazine as I just approached my everyday life. And so uh, for me, it's about making sure that, and again, I, I, I don't think about it in terms of a diversity issue. To me, it's more about inclusivity. And let's make sure that we have a, we broaden the voices. And we expand, you know, the, the stories that are being told to be reflective of what's actually happening. When, when are you going to come in and be one of the podcasters? For the, <laughs> I think that you and Cynthia could go head to head on the, on the Voices series. Um, so I, I know that we want to talk about what you're doing here at Wine to Wine, but this is such a beautiful segue. Um, so that you have some pretty exciting things coming up uh, that I think, you know, are just remarkable looking at how far and, and how rapidly wine is being better about adopting change. I know there's still a long way to go. Um, I'm not trying to say that we're perfect on it, but how about you tell us where, when you leave Italy, what are you heading off to? Well, uh, I go to New York. Uh, and so Quench is the media partner for Jermaine Stone's new wine and hip hop festival that he's starting up in Brooklyn. Uh, and I'm so excited about that for a lot of reasons. One is because, I mean, people think of me or know me today as, you know, as a journalist, uh, as a wine educator and all, but I mean, I started off in the industry as a retailer. And so from 95, 1995 until 2016, I owned one of the 
more successful private wine stores in Canada. You're allowed to be proud of your work. Uh, thank you. <laughs> and but the thing was, is that I actually uh, didn't come from the wine industry when I opened my shop. And I think that was actually a benefit because my whole um, MO when I opened the shop was let's have this great selection of wines uh, focusing in on small independent producers from around the world, all different price points, great value, but let's make wine accessible to the average consumer. Let's make good wine accessible to the average consumer. And that's how I always approached it. And to me, this isn't the magazine's extension of that. Um, uh, I did uh, uh, a CBC radio uh, wine column for 11 years every Thursday morning. Uh, again, with the idea that let's make wine more accessible. And, you know, that started in 99 and it was about storytelling. It was about, and again, storytelling is not new. Everybody thinks storytelling is new. Storytelling is not new, but it was about. Many thousands of years old. <laughs> and it was about making quality wine accessible to the average person. And the, th the thing I love when Jermaine approached me about being involved with the festival it's the same thing. It's about making wine accessible to a broader audience. Yeah. Um, so I want to talk about the festival. Are you allowed to tell us? I mean, I don't know how much is under wraps, how much is public. Are you allowed to tell us what is involved in a wine and hip hop festival? Like who are the performers and what wines are there and what are the, you know, what's the audience? Are they 22 year olds? Are they 65 year olds? Is it, I hate generational demographics. I have to say that. Um, but, but like what, who comes? I don't know. This is the first time that it's happening. I mean, wow. and, and so, I mean, I'm going to learn what's going on too. I mean, uh, uh I'm going to be moderating a panel uh, or masterclass, uh, that's called, uh, I'm a hustler baby. And so, awesome. and so, um, I don't even know everybody who's on the panel yet. I find, I find that out in a couple of days, but uh, I think, you know, Jermaine and I you know, have talked a lot over the last uh, year or so, just about wine in general, in terms of, you know, the, uh, you know, in terms of the culture around wine, the culture around hip hop, the culture of uh, the interaction of bringing those things together and in, in a specific sense, but also in a general sense, because for years uh, I was involved with a a music festival in Canada called uh, Interstellar Rodeo, which was uh, me pairing wines with the individual artists who were at who were playing the festival, right? And that wine would be served while that artist was playing. Uh, and so I'm I'm a big believer that you know people who love wine, people who love food, they also love music and they well, love arts and culture and they love so many things and this is why when people talk about well wine blah blah lifestyle publication lifestyle this i'm like wine is part of lifestyle yeah yeah mm -hmm. I, and actually what's super interesting about this is that we think about the fine wine relationship to music all the time we think about the krug and the symphonics and we think about the I um Deviolet, that's it. Deviolet who works with krug right we've got we have so many examples beyond that we've got synesthesia um, but it's always in the context of these super luxury experiences, as opposed to, you know, regular, ordinary, everyday experiences. I'll, I'll tell a story. So I'm a I'm Gen Xer and I grew up with Pearl Jam and 
Eddie Vedder loves wine. And that all of these, all of us who grew up from being young kids, listening to everything, you name it, we still listen to that in our homes. I didn't become a classical um, music listener Mm -hmm. because I turned 45. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, and just, and again, I think that see, making it recognized as a part of our, as you say, as a part of our lifestyle, exactly where we are in the moment. Absolutely. Um, Just put in a little plug. You need to come to my presentation today because it's going to be like it's going to be like a drum and bass fetish club. That's that's the whole (laughs) whole theme of the presentation. So um, so you're working on you're working on this event, although you've done events, as you were saying, Interstellar Rodeo for years and years. Um, Let me just bring it back to wine to wine really quickly. I know you're in Italy regularly. (laughs) We get to have you here to talk with us this um, these this week. What are you chatting about? My topic is uh, understanding wine consumer buying behavior. And the subheading to that is stop listening to the pseudo experts. Ooh, ooh, am I one of the pseudo experts? Who are the pseudo experts? Tell me, tell me, tell me. <laughs> and it's a bit of a, you know, it's it's the... Data is good. Statistics are good. But unless you actually have interaction with the wine consumer, with the consumer, mm-hmm. it's really hard to tell people how uh, how to deal with consumers. It's really hard to, uh, I think, be um, have credibility uh, when you rely on data that is all about past purchases and generally past purchases of a very narrow uh, product range because of where they're getting this data from, right? So it's generally uh, narrows the product line. It's a very homogenous type of product and it's a very, it's a very commercial line as well. So, how do you predict and how do you uh, guide industry professionals in terms of dealing with the consumer when the data that you're relying on really isn't applicable to what the messaging of the wine industry tends to be, which is we want the consumer to drink better. We want them to try more things. And the only way to actually do that is to understand, number one, that before somebody is a wine consumer, they're a consumer, understanding a little bit about human behavior, and also understanding that it's possible to actually promote and advocate for good quality wine at inexpensive price points. Then that you know the the stratification uh, of. Uh, uh, of wine isn't based, shouldn't just be based on, on right. quality. Uh, but you can do that to a broader audience and you can do it in a big way because our industry too often, I think, says, oh, the average consumer, eh, they don't care what they drink. So let's give them all this mass produced swill. Exactly. But the good stuff is for the wine consumers. Yeah. It's like, no, no, no. We want to cultivate the average consumer and I think 25 years ago, our industry was really good with actually making wine more accessible 
to the average person and getting rid of that intimidation factor that had existed prior to that. Then I think our industry had a few missteps because as wine became more prevalent in mainstream society, instead of saying, hey, this is great, let's start introducing all these consumers who are now interested in wine because it's, it's almost everywhere, and let's give them this really good quality, inexpensive wines from Spain and Portugal and Italy. Uh, and, but instead, our industry ended up saying, hey, look at all these people who are interested in wine. Let's produce all this Coca-Cola swill yeah. and let's push it on them. And now our industry is trying to figure out how to fix that mistake. Because now our industry wants to talk about, oh, how do we relate to the consumer again? They want to talk about how do we get the consumer to drink better yeah. without really understanding that the industry created that mess in the first place. So, um, so many, many thoughts swirling in my head around that. Um, the first one is I struggle with wine data myself um, with our clients because I feel like in some sense it, we're just always um, supporting our own biases. Like we just want the data that tells us that whatever we're doing is right. And I actually find that we rarely use wine data in developing marketing strategies. We use lots of other interesting data, but I'm not interested really in, as you say, wine data that God knows when it came out and what the thought processes were. And sometimes you look at honestly the survey questions that were asked and the respondents and I'm like, this means nothing to me. I remember one time looking at a set of data that was about the U.S. And I'm looking at it and I'm like, but this doesn't mean anything to me because we've got states that we can't even ship to. So, like, mm -hmm. help me break down what it is. You know, Robert Joseph says um, he talks about this with China, that we're not ever talking about one country. We're talking about lots of micro markets. And I don't think that's just geo. I think that is um, just how we live. I think those are lifestyle choices. Um, so that's part of it. So I, I want to tell you what Felicity and I, um, we actually just had a podcast go out on this. Felicity Carter and I just went to Washington, DC for a professional journalist conference, um, had that was a contingent of seasoned experienced journalists, uh, journalism professors, and then all of these journalism students from across America. And these were like award-winning student journalists. Uh, and there were 750 people there, which is a good sized event. Anyway, people say, oh, what do you do? And we're like, we work in wine. No, really? And they were completely fascinated to discover that as, you know, student journalists to discover that there's a career writing about studying, researching that we have trade publications, we have tourism publications, we, you know, have all of this. And, and I think that that even is something that startled us is that we both looked at it and said, well, damn, next year we need to be back in this room talking to the 20, you know, the 20 year olds, the 19 year olds, the 22 year olds mm -hmm. who are graduating with journalism degrees right now. They were just fascinating. I mean, Felicity was talking to this one young man, and this is all in the podcast if people want to go back and listen to it, about how wine is such a marker or, you know, our grapes are such a marker for what's going on in climate change. And you can actually Absolutely. track the yeah. whole of climate change through the wine industry. And they were just a gog. They're like, whoa. <laughs> so we sit here in wine all the time. We're like, oh, young people don't like wine. Well, you know why? 
Because we're not talking to them. We're not making it interesting. Why are they going to like something when we're like, come be like us Absolutely. as opposed to, hey, we want, you know, we can meet mm-hmm. you where you are. We can use the language, which I think going back to Jermaine Stone, who I've followed on social media for years, such a great example of we as an industry need to learn to use the language of our audiences, not you know, indoctrinate them in this education. Sorry, I've, I've had my little soapbox. You can talk now. No, no, absolutely. I mean, you're, you're absolutely correct. And I think, I think that's historically been one of the big issues with our industry um, is, is the fact that it is indoctrination in a lot of ways, uh, as opposed to education and being inclusive uh, in a, and just being interesting and being entertaining. Well, we have, make a joyous product. Exactly. I mean, I mean, this is this is the thing about about food and wine. I mean, for me, food and wine has always been something that's it's fun, right? It's yeah. something that's that's enjoyable. It's something that you know can enhance your life. It, it can it can make your life more enjoyable. It shouldn't be something that you know when somebody starts talking about wine, you shouldn't go. You know, it, it, it's, it's the, or what is it that we hear? Oh, I, I like wine, but I don't know a lot about it. You probably know a lot more than I do. I mean, how many times have we all had a dime for every time that someone looked at us absolutely. and said that? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. But it's also the, you know, too often. And I think this again, this goes back to the 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 last 15 years or so where our industry got so intent on. Uh, only talking to people about the technical side. Mm-hmm. And it's like, know your audience. And if you're talking to a bunch of psalms, sure, absolutely. But if you're talking to a bunch of consumers, they don't care what the pH is. Yeah. Bricks has never sold a <laughs> bottle of wine ever. Exactly. TA has never sold one. I should have to tell you a story, and then I want to come back to Quinch. Um, so I have a client... I. I just completely fell in love with this story. Um, I'm a client based out of Atlanta. He is a urban romance publisher and has a whole slew of authors who work under him. Um, and just completely fascinating and rolled out his own wine brand, rolled out his own wine brand specifically for his authors and for his, his audience, because he's like, is there anything better to do? than to sit down with a book and a glass of wine. And I was like, I love this so much. Um, and, and in that kind of thing, even of understanding our intent and our behavior, and, you know, we don't always drink the same way. And we don't, the, the other thing is we don't always drink the same thing. I may love uh, an expensive bottle of wine sometimes but there are other nights that i'm like i just want something that if i open it and i don't drink any more than one glass i'm not going to feel guilt about it or <laughs> excuse me or whatever it is so just i don't know i think being more expansive with this amazing property that we have which is which is wine um well on the cover on the cover of uh, the current issue of quench it says there's over a thousand grape varieties in the world used to make wine you don't eat the same food every day so why would you always drink the same wine? Right, right. So, okay, so just bringing it back around to Quinch. Um, in terms of content, so is it all wine erudition? I know the answer to that, as I say it. Um, is it the stories of people who make it? Is it food and wine? Is it music and wine? Like, what's what's the sort of content that Quinch is known for? I mean, we, we, I mean, we started as a wine publication. We are still a wine publication, but 
Um, but is that like reviews, awards? That what 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 we try to do is we try to focus in on the stories, right? And so and and that gets you know I think overused a little bit, but I've always believed that food and wine get their context from people, place, culture, and history. And when you can put food and wine in those contexts, that's how you get people to be able to relate to it, mm -hmm. right? You, you can have food and wine in a vacuum is you eat it, you drink it, it tastes good, it doesn't taste good, whatever. It, mm -hmm. That's it. It sustains us. Exactly. It. But when you actually put it in a context that helps people to relate to it and helps people to connect to it, that's how you get people engaged with it. And so on the, whether it's food, whether it's, you know, or uh, whether we're doing a, um, a profile on a chef, um, whether we're doing uh, a profile on a wine region, we try to put things in the context of, you know, for the chef, what's the chef's background? What are the chef's in inspirations? Mm. With the winemakers, same thing. What's the cultural context? What's the historical context of the region, right? Ab about the people from that region, you know, where is all this coming from? And so it becomes a little bit more of a, um, uh, I mean, it, it sounds, I think, you know, it's too simple to say that it's storytelling because I think that term has become a little bastardized. Yeah, it has. Um, but again, when we talk about storytelling isn't new, right? And so what we try to do is do it in a way that is not dumbing things down. We're doing it in a way that is not speaking over people's heads. And I think that's one of the reasons why we've gotten such a good following with the magazine, both from industry as well as from the consumer. Right. Uh, and we've expanded a little bit into, into music. Nice. Because, um, uh, and in some ways, I mean, the magazine is a, a little bit reflective of of me in the sense that I love food, I love wine, I love music. Uh, but we're also trying to approach the music side with the same thing. And we're not just, you know, uh, doing profiles on artists when they're releasing uh, uh, an album, uh, but we are trying to humanize the artists and give people a little bit more insight into, you know, what, what makes these people tick? What do they like? What, right. what, and, and this also helps them to relate and I think get a little bit more context in terms of the art that they're actually creating. I mean, really what we're doing is we're just making friends, you know, through, through the context. It's just, am I going to like this person? Well, the more that I know about them as a person, the more possibility there is that I'm going to like them. Exactly. So, um, so the print publication comes out twice a year. Twice a year. But you've got an active online publication. Yeah. Where can we find that? Quench.me. Okay. Is the, the website. Um, and through the website, you can subscribe to the print publication, which, of course, is distributed around the globe. Uh, and uh, we do a, a weekly newsletter uh, as well that uh, some of our writers, uh, uh, Michaela Morris, Michelle Buffard, Christopher Seeley, uh, all do kind of take turns writing the, the lead for the, uh, the weekly newsletter. Uh, and... You know, it's 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 something that we're just trying to do something in a way that um, helps people relate more to food to and To quench wine. their curiosity. Exactly. Um, exactly. Thank you so much for that. I know. <laughs> um, and on social media, Insta, Twitter. Instagram, Twitter, all that stuff. Yeah, which, um, 
my digital manager deals with all we like those digital managers a lot and then of course you yourself are all over the place at events and just like this one just like the one that's coming up i know that you end up on podcast all the time so so we can't help but find you personally as well on instagram at gervinder vino on the go on the go, appropriately <laughs> named. Gravinder, thank you so much. I appreciate your time today. Thanks so much, Polly. And that's a wrap. Thank you for listening and a great big thank you to Gravinder for joining me today live from Wine to Wine. The Italian Wine Podcast is among the leading wine podcasts in the world and the only one with daily episodes. Tune in each day and discover all our different shows. Be sure to join us next Sunday for another look at the world of wine marketing. Listen to the Italian Wine Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We're on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Himalaya FM, and more. Don't forget to subscribe and rate the show. If you enjoy listening, please consider donating through italianwinepodcast.com. Any amount helps cover equipment, production, and publication costs. Until next time, cheat cheat.